is basically the Oedipus complex for Freud. Child wants to fuck the mother, yeah. and that's the problem that the father wants to fuck the mother. Hmm. Because if the father wants to fuck the mother, then it's a problem that the child wants to fuck the mother too. She's yeah. a scarce resource. Yeah. And so he stands in the way yeah. of the 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 child's uh, desire to be with the mother. So the child wants to fuck the mother, kill the father. I don't know what the name of the podcast is as of now. So we'll just welcome you on the on this podcast for now. Mm. So you you're saying something. Yeah, you were asking me how I define what I do. Yeah. And uh first off, I like the idea that I'm you're more defined by what you do than some sort of an identity. Yeah. This I was just saying earlier that I don't like the idea of being identified as a professor. It's more of a role I play and I do it playfully for as long as the university will allow it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a performance. And literally at IIT, hmm. what I've noticed is when I'm performing, I'm I'm on a stage quite literally. There's a stage. And in the classroom? In the classroom. Okay. Yeah. And so it, it's a performance in some sense. And I'm performing and whatever resonates with the students, you know, maybe um, they, they, they try and decipher and, and create some knowledge out of this bullshit that I'm presenting them. You know, and, and I don't think bullshit is necessarily a bad thing. Okay. Um, there's this author from Yale University, I think. Can you just uh, take the mic closer to your mouth? Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's this author, maybe you've heard of him or somebody who's listening might have heard of him, yeah. named Harry Frankfurt. Hmm. And he wrote this book that I think you can pick up at pretty much any bookstore uh, around the world titled On Bullshit. Okay. And his whole effort was to say that bullshit is even worse than a lie. Because, you know, with a liar, you can prove them wrong. And once you prove them wrong, maybe they'll come around to your point of view. But the bullshitter is like nailing jello to the wall. You can, every time you try and pin them, they'll move around and they'll slide around and you can never capture them. So you can never prove them wrong. Hmm. My whole idea is that the university is afraid of bullshit on the one hand. We know that because of things like what's called the SoCal hoax. I don't know if you've heard of it, trying to demonstrate that there are philosophers out there that are bullshitting and ha ha, we caught them, Yeah. you know, and we're exposing them. In psychoanalysis, we begin with the bullshit. Okay. You know, you come in to, your, to, to, the, to see your psychoanalyst and your psychoanalyst says, go ahead, bullshit. Yeah. And you bullshit, you speak, you speak freely for like, I don't know, months and months, maybe years. And eventually you find something fruitful in the bullshit. Yeah. And so when I look at somebody like this professional bullshitter named Harry Frankfurt, I say he's a very good bullshitter. Okay. And so, yeah, I would say in some sense what I'm doing on the stage in front of students is I'm bullshitting and it's a noble pursuit bullshit in that way and if people want to fabricate some sort of knowledge to uh, to try and understand what's being said that's on them maybe they will yeah um but uh i think that's what i do it's a bit like poetry that's interesting uh you talk about bullshitting and uh so i'm a writer and i'm also an aspiring filmmaker so i think about art a lot and uh i was just wondering that art shapes the collective cultural consciousness of a society really 
deep in a way i was wondering if art should be looked at from a utilitarian point of view or should you just bullshit your way through art <laughs> and if somebody finds some utility in it that's okay what do you think about that uh it's it's uh, it's a tough question i take it sort of one by one what does art do for each person and maybe for each culture for each society um i for example for me recently i don't know why i was i started writing poetry which is an art form yeah it's an art form like uh and in my poetry i realized that it was serving a particular function for me yeah um it was like um the poem was weaving something together which wasn't necessarily a knowledge you know the idea of poetry for a lot of people is it weaves meaning through metaphor metonymy these these linguistic uh, functions um for me what the poem was doing was it was knowing and when i say knowing i don't mean k n o w i n g oh, yeah. it was n o ing it was saying no to my enjoyment hmm. and so i was writing these poems and i noticed i was constantly repeating the word no in them and it was it was saying no to something something traumatic perhaps something like that so what can poetry do um uh, before i came to india i was displaced by the war that was happening between sorry the military exercises that were happening between russia and ukraine yeah. and uh i ended up in ireland which was the home of james joyce hmm. although i don't know if he would call it a home and what's really interesting for joyce is his art his art it seems to me was functional it allowed him to get a sense of himself as an artist and this was a point that was made by a psychoanalyst named Jacques Lacan yeah he noted that in the title of one of Joyce's books a portrait of the artist in english that's the definite article the artist like he was the artist yeah um as a young man it it served a function it helped to stabilize him so art can can help to uh, to stabilize a culture and not merely to um give expression to its discontent its suffering you know when I, i'm talking a lot i know but when no, i was, okay. when i was younger i remember the whole idea of poetry for me and for all these we called them emos yeah. uh not emus but emos we would uh we would you know we broke up with our girlfriends or whatever our partners we would write some lyrical poem like it was uh yeah. and for some punk song like crying about our breakup the idea was that poetry was meant or the the art that we were producing was meant to give expression to our suffering yeah but it it's not always that way because i just gave you an example of how poetry wasn't being used to give expression for joy but to stabilize yeah. yeah so uh i take it kind of case by case so you're a psychoanalyst analyst and i was just wondering i don't know much about what psychoanalyst do what actually takes place in a psychoanalytic session uh, i think um even less do psychoanalysts know what we do huh. um because what often happens in a in a clinical consulting room if that's what you want to call it 
is that your psychoanalyst will thwart all of your identifications, everything you think you know. Hmm. And so the whole idea is to, is to frustrate the, the patient, we will say analystant, which is the word Lacan used, um, to frustrate them because knowledge can be a really comforting thing for people and it can obscure what's most at stake in a clinical session, which is the source of our anxieties. As soon as you start to frustrate people's knowledge about themselves, about other people, about the world, about what they think they know about their partners or their family and so on, it gives rise to a certain anxiety. And uh, it sounds like I'm quoting scripture, but Lacan said, anxiety is a signal of the real, hmm. which means as soon as anxiety is on the scene, um, something in what we thought we knew breaks down and we're pointing at something that should be targeted, something that we should learn how to live with hmm. uh, and how to bring into our lives. So, you know, what happens from the beginning of a session toward the end in the good old days, Many decades ago, people would, I don't know, they'd be cheating on their partners or something like that, and they'd go see their analyst, yeah. and this is fascinating, and they'd say, oh, help me, I'm in love with my partner, mm. my wife, but I'm cheating on her yeah. at the same time. And the idea was that the psychoanalyst would try and adapt to you and say, oh, don't, you know, we have to somehow find a way for you to uh, both love and desire your partner, your wife. Freud had this interesting expression in one of his essays, where such people love, they cannot desire, and where they desire, they do not love. And so the idea was to bring love and desire into one object, their partner. It's really interesting because today, when people go to their psychoanalyst, um, it's quite the opposite. The analyst will say, like, oh, you're too fixated on your partner. You're too in love with, your, with this one woman. Explore all the possibilities yeah. around you, you know, like um, free love, try non-monogamy, experiment with your sexuality yeah. and this sort of stuff. Um, the, the Lacanian psychoanalyst tries to intervene into that. Hmm. So there's a lot of, um, in, a, in a clinical session, there's a lot of quietness. There's a lot of equivocations, a lot of wordplay, uh, and uh, and a lot of um, confronting uh, the unbearable. This is what's happening in the in the clinic today. So would it be wrong for me to say, you know, let's probably read between the lines, read between the bullshit of what the person actually says? Um, to some extent, I think. What the psychoanalyst is trying to do is to not be captured by the knowledge that's being presented to them because it's a lure. Yeah. Whatever a person is saying to you, that's not it. Exactly. Um, so to read between the lines, I, said, I, I, I suppose, would be to, to stop looking at the meaning that's being presented to you and to start looking at the unique way in which um, this particular person is using language. Uh, and that's a little bit different because the old idea, you know, the old idea of the Freudians, mm. not all of them, but many of them, what they would try and do would be to interpret at the level of meaning. I'll give you an example. It's probably one you're familiar with. The idea of bringing a dream to your analyst. 
Yeah. You know, like you have this dream and you bring it to your analyst and you're speaking about it. And the idea is that in speaking about it, you're making statements and interpretations, psychoanalytic interpretation is somehow supposed to dig into those statements that you're making in the uh, to your analyst to find some deeper meaning. Yeah. What Freud called the latent content that's appeared within the manifest uh, speech of the patient. Um, this isn't so much what's going on in the clinic today. We're not interpreting at the level of meaning. Hmm. We're looking at places where meaning breaks down, um, where uh, sound start to uh, dominate the, the patient's speech, particular sounds. I mean, there's a reason why today ASMR is so popular. Yeah, it is. You know, if I do this with the mic... Yeah. You know, some people are going to be repulsed and move away very quickly. Yeah. Other people are going to be turned on. And listen to it for a while. Yeah. yeah. There are fucking YouTube Some videos. Pretty, they love the sound of the brush going through the hair. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't get it. Some people, though, it's it's even reached porn where I think it's most honest. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Go in on. pornography, you know, there's there's ASMR pornography now, and people will pay a lot of fucking money for this shit. What's that? AS, I don't know if it's called ASMR uh, pornography, but huh. they'll go to various websites hmm. and you'll pay a particular model, uh, an outrageous, what I think to be That's an outrageous OnlyFans. sum of yeah, yeah, something like OnlyFans. I don't know what these websites are called, but it's it's like OnlyFans. Yeah. And they'll make a special video of, I don't know, the sound of hair, the, the brush going through the hair while they're naked or like making liquid sounds with their tongue, they'll lick the microphone, these sorts of things, because yeah. sounds are really important today in the unconscious, and they're without meaning. And some people are very aroused by these sounds. Other people, like myself, I, I'm very repulsed by particular sounds. They call that mesophonia. Hmm. Um, and so sounds, I mean, sounds were very important during one particular period in my analysis particularly not the meaning of the word chicken, but the sound, the sound. Okay. Um, and at, I mean, I, I'm, I'm admitting way too much here on this show, but I broke up with a woman over this because the way she said the word chicken, I had to move the phone away. Whoa. <laughs> I had to move the phone and, and yeah. it was, it was always happening. And I had to move the phone away from my ear. I was so repulsed by the, the uh, the the click noise, okay, the popping noise. Yeah. I think they call it a retroflex. The way the sound goes back in the throat, mm. it repulsed me, and I explored that in my analysis. There's no meaning here, yeah. But you can learn how to live with it. And one day I was walking down by the water with my son, um, in just outside of Toronto, and. We both overheard a woman, uh, an older woman, and she said something like, I don't know what they were talking about. She said it was like spring chickens. Okay. She said it like that. And my son and I both looked at each other and we laughed. And the horror of the sound him, yeah. used to horrify me. At this moment, at a period in my analysis, it became laughter instead. And I was able to bond instead of being pulled away from other people by these sounds, I bonded with my son over the sound. Uh, and a new configuration, a new relationship to the sound was possible. So this is the sort of stuff that we're working with in analysis today. It's, it's not at the level of meaning so much.
Hmm. It's at the level of what horrifies you. Our nightmares, not our dreams, but our nightmares, particular sounds, equivocations, homophones, plays with language where when I say the word no, maybe you're thinking K-N-O-W, but it also sounds like N-O. Yeah, it does. Which is radically different. Um, and so we play around with this sort of stuff because we realize that the unconscious is made up of sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, what do they call it? Do, they, uh, do psychoanalysts call them patients who come to them? Uh, is that the correct term? That's a great question. In fact, Lacan coined the phrase analyst. Okay. So we say psychoanalyst, yeah. but we'll also say psychoanalystant, yeah. uh, S-A-N-D at the end. And the reason why we add that suffix is um, because we recognize that the psychoanalyst isn't doing much work. In fact, the better your psychoanalyst, the more lazy. Hmm. Your psychoanalyst is not doing the work of interpretation. The analyst is doing the work. That's why we use the word analyst, because mm. it means that the analyst is doing all the work of his, her, or their own analysis. Okay. So you're paying your psychoanalyst to do work yourself. That's uh, weird. Yeah, you're doing the work. Yeah. Uh, your analyst is not going to save you, mm. but your analyst will serve a function according to which you are capable of saving yourself, which is priceless. Mm. Uh, in the university, they've tried to do something like this. Um, I think it's cunning. The old idea was that you would pay tuition and you would go and you would listen to your professor lecture. Yeah. These fucking professors who think they know a thing or two, right? And so they're lecturing, they're transmitting knowledge from point A, which is them, you know, the pulpit, mm. to the students who are sitting around listening. I don't think the analysts knew that the students were in the position of the analyst. I don't think the professor knew that the students were in the position of the analyst. They were yeah. in the position of judging their professors listening. And that's exactly what they did. They went on to create websites like rateyourprofessor.com, and they start to fact check their professors. They're periscoping their professors. They have websites like, what is it? There was a website once listen to my crazy Marxist professor.com or something like that. That's you know, funny. and the whole idea was they were, they were judging the knowledge of their professors. Yeah. And in recent years, decades, in fact, now you'll pay tuition. You'll go, you'll sit around a round table and your professor will sit there and say, well, what do you think? Hmm. And the professor's not bringing knowledge. He's like a platform like Facebook or Twitter or something like that. Hmm. And, you just get to pay to to say what you know, and the professor's there to facilitate what you know. Discussion, basically. Yeah. And he gets paid a lot of money. But is that a thing in India right now? In India, it doesn't seem to be the case, hmm. although there's efforts to produce classrooms like this with a Canadian, Marsh, uh, a, a Canadian philosopher named Marshall McLuhan called the flipped classroom. Okay. Uh, there's efforts to do this because in India, they're trying to liberalize the education system. Hmm. In fact, my task uh, at IIT is to help to build liberal arts school. And so there's an attempt to cr produce a more participatory um, educational experience, which has its drawbacks. Hmm. Because what do you get when you participate? You get to enjoy your education. Yeah. 
there's a sociologist named George Richter. If I'm talking too much, cut me off at any moment. There's a there's a sociologist named George Richter oh, yeah. who invented this word prosumer capitalism. And in prosumer capitalism, you both produce and consume commodities, whether that's your education, whether that's a Big Mac, which you build for yourself, um, or whether that's furniture, which you build for yourself, like IKEA. And what's at play in prosumer capitalism, or this latest phase of capitalism, which you can see in the education system, is that you must enjoy the experience of participating in, in um, the commodity form, or whatever you want to call it. You know, what's Facebook? It's pure enjoyment, and somebody's making a lot of money, and it's a platform. That's mm. Twitter as well. Enjoy yourself. Go ahead. Um, I think what psychoanalysis um, provides is a refuge from this sort of enjoyment, hmm. a space where it's okay not to enjoy, to not uh, participate, and, and so on. Do you have some uh, words term that you use for your patient? What's that? What's the word you use for the patient? Psycho what? Analysant. An analysant. Yes. Yeah. So do you have some analysants here in India? In India? Um, uh, not currently. Not currently. Have you had some? Yes. Okay. So uh, I'm just intrigued by this idea that the cultural psyche and the cultural unconscious of India is really different from that of the West. Mm. And in that, the Freudian or the Jungian or the Lacanian brand of psychoanalysis, does that work in India? It's a very, very good question. Uh, it's a question that I'm still exploring. I wouldn't say that psychoanalysis in India reveals a different cultural um, arrangement, different cultural unconscious or something like that. It's a tempting position. I think it reveals something that is true about the unconscious as such that the Western world, to put it simply, is only now coming to recognize. I'll give you an example. During the time of Freud, uh, there was a psychoanalyst in India, Dr. Bose. And Dr. Bose maintained a brief well, it wasn't brief, but that during each iteration of his correspondence with Freud, I would say it was brief. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't saying a lot to each other, but they were speaking over the course of many years. Dr. Bose suggested to Freud that his Oedipus model castration complex wasn't quite operative in India. He said what I'm going from memory. What he witnessed in India was something perhaps pre-Oedipal, um, something that we would say is at the level of the drive, at the instincts, or what Lacan would call the real unconscious. Um, and he was discussing the, the way in which there's a desire toward the feminine in India. Freud? I wouldn't say Freud was opposed to this idea, a desire toward the feminine, but he didn't really explore it. He seemed slightly combative in my assessment of his letters with Dr. Bose. Maybe not combative, but dismissive. 
But what we're witnessing today is the realization of the truth in the West. There is a push to the feminine. Um, and it does define something of the dark corners of the unconscious for all of us. We originally saw it in psychosis. In psychosis, there was what we called a push toward the feminine. We saw it in Freud's famous case. You're, you're likely not familiar with it, but the case of Judge Schraber, um, where he was sort of feminized by God. Um, but there are there are some interesting differences. I mean, look at it like this. I'm, I'm still coming to learn this in India, so uh, I admit that I have incomplete knowledge and there's a long way to go. But what is basically the Oedipus complex for Freud? Basically, father wants to fuck the mother. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, he does too. Child wants to fuck the mother. Yeah. And that's the problem that the father wants to fuck the mother. Hmm. Because if the father wants to fuck the mother, then it's a problem that the child wants to fuck the mother too. She's yeah. a scarce resource. Yeah. And so he stands in the way yeah. of the, the, the child's hmm. um, desire to be with the mother so the child wants to fuck the mother kill the father yeah in a nutshell i mean this is simplistic and you would be right to disagree that this is what freud thought but to put it simply what i notice in india and in indian mythology is something a little different the child stands in the way the child's the obstacle not the father so uh, I don't know, to take an example at random, Ganesha. Yeah. I think we talked about yeah, we this talked over about coffee. This. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, the child stands in the way, so cut his head off. It's not exactly what Freud called castration, uh, to cut the head off of Ganesha, the broken tusk. I think we'd be wrong to associate that with castration. Hmm. I think it's a different type of wound. Um but I hesitate to say what type of wound it is, but it's not what we would call symbolic castration, to put it in technical language. So it's the child that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, and so we're always kind of at the pre-Oedipal, the relations between the mother and the father. Uh, yeah. Eva and, hmm. and Ali. Uh, Shiva and Parvati. Yeah, 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 thank you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that day we were also talking about dating, right? And you mentioned that you have noticed some cultural differences when you date someone from around here than in the West. What actually are those differences? What are the differences? Dating. Yeah. In the West, the way dating tends to go, in my experience, unfortunately, is that from the very beginning, there's a clear indication of one's intention. And by intention, I mean where you want to go, where you expect it to go. Yeah. I'm not saying it will go there, but there's a clear understanding that uh, of a certain what you could say in philosophy is te teleology of the relationship. Hmm. Like you expect the const or you hope for the consequences to be of a certain type. Oh, I want something serious. So we hope to move toward something serious. So you plot your course and you move in a straight line toward that course. Uh, to, toward that objective. And um, increasingly, this isn't the case in the West, but that's kind of how it works. Here, uh, there's no explicit, uh, from what I could tell, and I don't want to generalize too much, yeah, there's but... no explicit 
discussion of the intentions, where you intend it to go. Hmm. The idea is that you will be friends or um, uh, or uh, well, nothing at all. It's it's quite it's quite friend based. Hmm. So whereas uh, in the West we have still some semblance of what I would call an integral sense of self, like my dating life. I'll talk to my mom and dad about it. Okay. I'm dating. I'm seeing this woman. We'll say seeing. I won't call her a friend. Hmm. Uh, or I'll, I'll say that to my mom and dad. I'll say it to my friends and so on. And I'll carry. Maybe there's subtle hues in how I'll discuss that relationship to people. Uh, but it kind of stays the same discourse, no matter who I'm talking about that relationship with. Here, I sense something of uh, a fractal sense of self, where, well, we'll call each other friends. Uh, secretly, maybe there's something romantic happening. You don't tell that to group B, mm-hmm. who... You and I, you're, I'm Boya, <laughs> I'm brother. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of managing different incarnations of what that relationship will be. Hmm. Uh, and I find that quite difficult for me as a cultural difference that I'm struggling to uh, acclimate to. The idea of having to present different versions of myself in different settings. Some people will say, no, you do that all the time in the West. In fact, there's even a sociologist from Canada named Irving Goffman. I think he's the most cited sociologist in the world who had a whole theory that this is what we do. He called it uh, um, impression management. We're constantly managing the impressions that we have in different settings in the cafe. I present a particular version of myself in the classroom. I present another version of myself and so on. I don't think it's quite like that, in fact. It's more like that in India, where um, I'll give an example. I hesitate to mention it, but I'll do it anyway. I was dating somebody many years ago here, and uh, I was told to keep it secret. Yeah. And I didn't like this. I wasn't used to it. I'm I'm learning, okay? Uh, And uh, so... I kept it secret, but I constantly said, why do we have to keep this secret? You know, I didn't understand dating is Mm. not so much a thing here. I'm coming to learn this now, so forgive me. Um, But I kept it secret. And then after the breakup, another group of friends that I was really close to got really upset and asked me, why didn't I tell them that I was in a relationship Mm. with this other person? And now I'm in conflict because on the one hand, I'm supposed to have a sense of self here. The other hand, they got upset when it was the, the other group got upset when it was uh, not disclosed to them. Hmm. And so um, you have to be really cunning, I think, to date here in India. To date in India. Yeah. Very, very cunning. Huh. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. So, uh, you've uh, dabbled uh, around love. Like a lot, it seems for me. Mm-hmm. I've also written a book called Real Love, and I was just wondering, uh, what do you think about love at this stage in your life? Mm. I'm sure it must have changed a lot since your twenties, let's say. Yeah. 
Uh, so that book, Real Love, came after a divorce. In fact, I wrote it in India five years ago or something like that in a span of a month or two, very quickly. I was raised Christian. I was raised Christian, Catholic. And then I did a pilgrimage through various religions, uh, including various forms of Christianity, atheism, um, and uh, Islam, and so on. So I explored many different religions, and after my divorce, the question had occurred to me, which wasn't just an intellectual preoccupation. Um, it was, do people love different, sorry, is love conceived differently in different religious scriptures? Which, to put it simply, could mean something like, do people love differently in different religious communities? And I think it's somewhat true. Um, I found that the easiest explanation of this difference is um, to look at the way that people repair arguments in the relationship after a key fight or whatever. How do they stay together? And I've discussed this before, but I'll say it quickly again. Uh, in Christianity, there's a sense in which uh, you, Christianity is very cunning um, because it will often suggest that you love differences, but precisely that is Christianity. And so you end up uh, perpetuating the discourse of Christianity precisely by saying, I respect your religion, I might not agree with your prophet, but you can still be part of my community, and so on. So it's a notion of liberal tolerance that I think is at the core of Christianity, and you can see it reflected in people's relationships. For example, if you get into a fight with your partner, you could just simply say, let's agree to disagree. Yeah. It's a principle of liberal tolerance. Let's agree to disagree. We have different points of view. It doesn't matter who's right, who's wrong. We'll just respect the difference and we'll stay together and the social bond, the social uh, order remains intact. It's really cunning. But I noticed that a lot of my Muslim friends who were raised in traditional Muslim communities didn't resolve their arguments in this way. Hmm. So I went in search of a principle of liberal tolerance in the Quran, hmm. didn't find one in the Quran. Not to say there isn't something in a hadith, um, but the what I found was, oh, people of the book, we must come to common terms, which is a really nice ethical precept. It says, let's find a minimal point of agreement. Okay, if we're having a debate between religions, let's mm. say they're Abrahamic religions. Where can we find a minimal point of agreement? We agree Abra We agree with Abraham. Everything hmm. goes astray after Abraham. Yeah. So let's start there. And many people who are leaders in interfaith discussions on the Muslim side, they'll often be begin with this. Let's hmm. begin with Abraham. And the way that arguments tend to get resolved in relationships is, well, let's find a minimal point of agreement. We're both Muslim? Okay. Hmm. Let's begin there. We're both Muslim. We both agree with that. Well, let's see if we can take it an inch further. <laughs> you know, what does, and, and then you go from there. Yeah. And, you, um, and 
um, I found in different religions, then there's different ways of building social groups, of building uh, love relationships and so on based upon this. What psychoanalysis adds is that love can also be a nightmare. Hmm. Uh, horrific. There's trauma bonding. I was mentioning to you yeah. before we started the podcast. There's trauma bonding, and hmm. I certainly played a part in trauma bonding, hmm. uh, where um, you're drawn to a person. You think you're in love with them all the more because of how cruel they are to you. Hmm. Um, it seems perverse, masochistic, sadistic, and these things really exist. The, there's a poet named Baudelaire who I like a lot, and there's a line in one of his poems that always resonated for me. I love you more because you flee from, uh, from me, hmm. which to some people can feel like a trauma when your partner is inaccessible, um, they're not responding to your text messages or whatever else. Yeah. Uh, so there's this dimension of love too. There's not just love as uh, an agreement of knowledge, we agree to come to common terms or we agree to respect differences. There's also love in the register of the nightmare. Hmm. Um, and I think today increasingly um, in the Western world at least, I. Um, I don't want to speak yet about India, but in the Western world, I think this is the form of love that's prevailing. And I intimated something of this in my book, Real Love. I said, love today is the least of possibilities, but precisely because it's the least of possibilities, when it does occur, it's all the more revolutionary. You know, when you're in love so much that you're willing to sacrifice your career, hmm. you're willing to change your religion, you're willing to listen to another person's point of view and these sorts of things, people will think you're sick. Don't give up your career. You know, it's it's causing you to sweat. It's, it's clearly a sickness. I think this is where we're at today. And I think so many people are afraid of love in the West today that they're opting for sex. Hmm. Um, and, um, and so uh, we see divorce rates that are through the roof. Uh, we see that everybody thinks marriage is a patriarchal institution. Um, we uh, we see an awakening of, of of consciousness, which is fucking frightening. Men going their own way. Hmm. Um, it's um, it, it's a uh, it's a really strange time to uh, to be alive. Um, so I think love is actually. Um, something we need more than ever today. For Freud, love was eros, hmm. uh, as opposed to thanatos. Okay. Thanatos was the god of death, hmm. which breaks things up. Uh, and eros is the god of love, which binds things together. Hmm. Uh, we, uh, I'll say one more point, and then I'll shut up. Um, Lacan used to say, love is what makes up for the lack of a sexual relationship. Hmm. And it seems today that sex is what's making up for the lack of uh, any wanting in love. And uh, that makes me really depressed. Another thing. Uh, Plato said something good, right? Love is just nature's way of fooling us into procreating. Right? Oh, so, I love that fooling. Yeah. Fooling us. This is, this is the point because, you know, here's, to be in love, you have to be a fool. Especially yeah, if you're a man. Like Especially if you're a heterosexual man. Hmm. You have to be a fool. Why is you, that? Because 
you have to allow yourself to be stupid. And today, everybody knows everything. How can you be in love when you know everything already? K-N-O-W. You already yeah. know everything. You know um, uh, love means you're going to be possessed or it's, you know, it's patriarchal or you know that uh, uh, liberation means ha experimenting with the possibilities. You, everybody knows everything. But to be in love, you need to be duped. And it's mm. really hard to be duped. It's really, really hard. It takes a really long time to become stupid. Yeah. Stupid enough even to fall in love, I think. Um, this was Socrates' genius, of course. I, he knows nothing. Hmm. It's really hard to get to that level, you know? This is why um, I told you before we started today, I feel insulted when people call me a professor. Hmm. It took me a really long time to be this stupid. And I'm still not stupid enough. Of course, the word stupid means to be in awe, yeah. to be in awe, to look at the world as if it's poetry or art hmm. and to see it and, and, to, um, and to want to join it. I think... So, uh, so do you say that actually making sense of uh, how the world functions and being knowledgeable comes in the way of actually enjoying it, actually living it? Yeah, I think so. I think hmm. so. I mean, let's go back to our analogy of the students in the classroom. Because analogies make things more tangible. Um, students used to go to their professors claiming they didn't know something that they want their, wanted their professors to enlighten them about. Teach me something. I don't know. And when they do know, they would doubt their knowledge. Do I have this right? Is it true that, I don't know, Plato thought, whatever. Is it, and you doubt it. Is it right? Do I really understand it? Ah, but my professor can rectify things. And it was the same with the psychoanalyst. People would go to see the psychoanalyst and they would put, hoist their analyst up onto a stage, a pedestal, and they would say in their minds, my analyst knows something, knows how to cure me, knows what I'm thinking, knows what all of this means. Hmm. Lacan had a phrase for this, the sujet supposed to savoir, which means the subject supposed to know, hmm. the supposed subject of knowledge. Today, it's obvious. We all know everything already. Of course we do. We have our laptops. No, I'm not picking in. We have our laptops in front of us. We have our cell phones yeah. with us. And at any moment during a lecture, I mean, I hear from professors all the time, they can't stand that students have their phones out or their laptops during class. They're threatened. They're mm. threatened by it. These professors are threatened by the fact that their students know more and have access to knowledge more than they do. They're right to feel threatened by that because they're not in the position of knowing anything anymore. Everybody already knows. It's not the one who's supposed to know who knows. Hmm. It's the analyst who knows everything. So we've moved from a phase of, of doubt vis-a-vis -vis knowledge to certainty. We're all certain. We're certain of everything. I'm certain of my gender. I'm certain of, of what illness I'm suffering from. Maybe I'm... I, I'm I diagnose myself with depression. I'm certain that I have depression. Nobody's going to change my mind on it. Mm. And so we, we already have all the knowledge. How can you fall in love with an other, whether it's transference you'd have to your teacher, your professor, or a partner, if you already know everything? Mm. So this is why I think uh, we're really in a hopeless age. Um, and in a hopeless age, hope itself becomes revolutionary again. 
Zizek always says the courage of hopelessness. On this point, I disagree with Zizek. I think there's courage to be stupid enough to have hope today. Hmm. I wish I had that courage. So my friend over there had some yeah. questions for you. Oh, good. He actually wrote it. So he's going to ask you probably. There are a couple of them actually. So I either choose one or just ask you everything. So um, first I want to like, uh, ask your opinion on the wage gap between the man and woman, like in the society itself. So, uh, what do you think? Like, does it exist? And if it exists, uh, is it for a reason? And is it um, not a problem? It's, uh, like, what's your point on that? What's your opinion on that? Wow, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm positioned to speak on it. And and even if I did, which I might try, I don't know. Uh, I never know what I'm going to say until I say it. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think I'd give you an answer that would be satisfying. Um, I'm not so much interested in what people get paid, uh, to be honest. You know, a wage, of course, as Karl Marx said, is the minimum amount. I mean, I'm paraphrasing Marx. It's the minimum amount you can pay somebody to keep them from revolting in the street. And when we speak about equalizing the wage gap, I'm thinking spontaneously, it seems to me we're speaking about how to minimalize, minimalize this revolt. I'm much more interested in what people will pay, what price we're willing to pay to be admitted into uh, a relationship with others, what sacrifices we're willing uh, to make. Um, the old revolutionaries, for example, made legitimate sacrifices. I'm not suggesting revolutionaries today don't make sacrifices. Maybe I'm suggesting it a little bit. <laughs> but we used to sacrifice. We would sacrifice by putting ourselves in prison for years. I know India had a history of people doing that. We would sacrifice our reputations. Uh, we would sacrifice um, our money. I mean, uh, I was reading about a particular revolutionary who didn't have a lot of money, but would often, well, it was Marx. <laughs> um, he was taken under the wing of Engels, of course, who had more money, but when, when Marx, had a little bit of money, he would he, he was using some of it to fuel some uh, working class uprising. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's not so much about oh, how can we maintain balance in society and so on, but how can we expose the fundamental antagonism within society around which we can organize a new social order, a new social bond, and what sacrifices are we willing to make? What are we willing to give up in order to get there? And I think the real sacrifice we need to uh, make is, it begins with our enjoyment, our enjoyment of knowledge, of being on the right political position. I'm sorry, this makes me very um, not fashionable among my friends, um, who I care about very much, by the way, <laughs> Some of my friends who are part of the Zizekian left, they went to school with me, Zizek was our teacher and so on. Um, but um, uh, I lost my thread. What was I saying? Forgive me. You're talking about this idea of... Oh, yes, this is it. This is it. Yeah. I don't think we need to reinvigorate some sort of leftist agenda that we've lost our way. This to me is a nostalgia for the left, for some revolutionary left 
that we think we lost and we can somehow revive it. This old idea, and even when we're trying to overcome it, we still use the language of left and right. I don't think it matters anymore. At some very essential level, I think the idea of the left and right, which emerged, as you know, out of the French Revolution, uh, these were left and right uh, asymmetrical political positions, the left often on the side of progress, the right on the side of stasis and balance and these sorts of things, but precisely within a social structure that we can call capitalism. We can call modern capitalism. We're not in modern capitalism anymore. So I'm not so interested in in discussing, and I'm not suggesting you were, but of 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 of, of bolstering some leftist agenda. We need a new language to articulate um, the new freedoms from which we suffer. And by this, I mean quite the opposite. I'm really critiquing Zizek today of what Zizek says. You know, Zizek often says we need a new language. We lack the very language to articulate our unfreedom. This was his position. We lack the very language to articulate our unfreedom. His idea is that we're not free, we're subjugated. We need to articulate the way in which we're determined by economic, political forces and this sort of stuff. I think it's quite the opposite. We suffer from freedom today. Freedom is not a good thing. It's a terrible thing. We just need to go back to Kierkegaard to realize that. Freedom is great as a fantasy. Like, you know, who knows freedom the best? It's a prisoner. Prisoner looking outside of the bars of his prison, sees freedom out there and dreams of it. This mm-hmm. is a wonderful thing to dream of, of, of freedom in this particular way. But I think today we're suffering from freedom and the, and the fundamental um, uh, political uh, division is not between a left and a right, but precisely between tribes groups that are increasingly segregating themselves from one another. The enemy today is segregation, not exploitation. Like a wage, again, I know I'm talking a lot, but for for Marx, a wage was implicated in a process of exploitation, which he, I mean, the idea was that uh, surplus value is extracted um, and from the commodity or whatever, and whatever is um, is uh, left over after you pay a wage and reinvest to maybe into your factory or something like that, that's surplus value, this idea. But the idea is that you're alienated within capitalism from other workers, from, uh, from the product of your labor and all these various things. You're alienated within modern capitalism. Um, and left and right, well, right is maybe more ideological. The left has a chance of realizing that we're alienated. We can overcome it. This is the idea. I think that's wrong. It, we're not in that world anymore. We're in a world where increasingly we're not alienated or exploited within. I can say whatever the fuck I want here. Hmm. You told me. Yeah. In some sense, I can in the classroom, too. And if they get rid of me, okay, I'll go figure out something else. Whatever. But the idea is that I, you know, many of my books, they weren't, they weren't something that I wrote because I was under contract and then uh, it was taken from me. All my books were basically transcriptions of lectures that I gave in the classroom. And I did with it what I wanted. I wasn't alienated from the product of my labor. Now, maybe I'm particularly privileged and I think that likely. But I think the domain of privilege has been expanding to an extent that um, is troublesome. 
Unlike Jordan Peterson, I have a problem with the expansion of privileges. I don't want to regret to the restriction of privileges. But we're exploited and alienated between groups. I'll give you an example, and then I'll shut up. Think about the fact that um, Eminem, hip-hop artist, of course, they wanted to cancel him on TikTok several years ago. But on YouTube, everybody was celebrating him. It's like they're in two different universes, Hmm. depending upon the farm you're on, the platform. You're in two different platforms. When we say platform, platform capitalism, as opposed to modern capitalism, we're just saying a new form of feudalism. These are just farms. We're back into a new form of feudalism. And what Marx said about feudalism is very clear. Feudal serfs have a difficult time organizing themselves precisely because they're on different farms. You know, that whereas in capitalism, you leave the farm because you have a home that you can own, private property, and then you can go and mix with other workers in the factory. And so you have a chance for an uprising. This is why Marx was a capitalist. Marx was a capitalist. He wasn't anti-capitalist. He was pro-capitalist because it's through capitalism that we have the chance of entering communism. He was a he was a capitalist precisely because he was a communist. Today we're not even fucking capitalist. It's a problem. In some sense, capitalism would be an advancement because at least in capitalism we can mix with one another again in the factory. We can we can feel what it's like to be alienated and then come to some sort of uh, consciousness, a class for itself, and we can and we can build unions. But a union in the context of feudalism is just another farm. It doesn't make any sense. It's not going to help anybody. We're just segregating and forming tribes again. And maybe that tribe will be woke. Maybe that tribe will be anti-woke and you can call them Republicans, whatever. But they're just tribes. This is where we are today. Uh, That was a very long rant. I apologize. It's a very, like I've asked this question like several people, but it's a very new take to this case. This is another question. Um, So... I would, uh, so what's the stance on gender identity and the concept of gender fluid? Oh, stance on it. I don't have a political position, but I have a psychoanalytic position on it, Um, which isn't a position, but more of an orientation. Obviously, I wrote a book on gender. Uh, I I wrote a book on gender theory. Um, Can I just bring the mic closer? Yes, great, great. Good, good, good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wrote a book on gender uh, theory, and uh, I don't quite remember it <laughs> several years ago. Uh, so what's my stance on gender identity and gender fluidity? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see if we can approach something of an answer. I don't know. Uh, well, what's interesting to me is that... Um, when patients come to see me, they'll often talk about their gender identity. And of course, um, one of the, let's say, innovations of an American brand of gender theory that people believe is French, known as post-structuralism, heralded by Judith Butler in the, uh, really the mid-1980s, where she was discussing gender performativity 
this idea of gender as a performance, mm. which makes it something fluid. It's fluid in the sense that we're performing scripts, um, a script, a gender script. Um, this was uh, this has been a really popular idea for quite a long time. That gender is something that we perform as if we're on a stage. Um, and uh, and every time we try to run off the stage, we hit an invisible barrier because we don't know what's off the stage. At that point, we encounter what a psychoanalyst would call sex. The key innovation of Judith Butler was to make a distinction between gender and sex. I don't know if it was the first time it was done, but it was uh, an important moment because before that time, particularly in the Anglophone scene, gender and sex were, Judith Butler would say, conflated with one another. Gender equals sex equals biology. Um, or so, I'm keep, I mean, I'm reducing it to the extreme, but something like that. What Judith Butler did, they made a cut. And the cut was to say there is gender, which is a cultural repository of uh, impression, script that can be performed. And then there's sex. And in an early paper by Judith Butler, which not many people ever quote, um, they make a really interesting point. Butler says there is the cultural enactment of this abiding illusion known as gender. It's an illusion. And then there's the biological facticity of sex. Even Judith Butler claimed that there is something biological. In 1989, 1988, in a, in a paper titled uh, Gender Performativity, I think, in Theater Journal. I don't know why I remember that. Um, and uh, so there's this idea of the playfulness of gender. But it's precisely the playfulness of gender within language, different meanings. So you, you fuck with gender. What psychoanalysis adds is that there's sex. And sex can never be said. It's uh, it's uh, uh, it's a hole in any discourse that would seek to contain it. And so um, when you encounter sex, you're horrified. And that's exactly what happens in uh, the clinic. People can talk about their gender quite comfortably, not always. I have many patients who have difficulties speaking about their gender, but there are many patients who will speak comfortably about their gender as well. Um, but when it comes to sex, it's a stumbling block. Um, sex is merely a hole in knowledge, in um, in. Uh, in our image of ourselves, and it threatens every knowledge and image that we could possibly make for ourselves. So no matter how much you identify with the gender, the whole will always threaten it. Um, so th this, is, um, this is a really difficult topic beyond that point. But one thing I would say is that there is a prevalence today 
of those who are certain about their gender. I wouldn't say they're a they're a large group, but uh, I am noticing more of them. The old idea of Judith Butler was that when a person stands in front of the restroom doors, of which there were usually two options, male or female, the person would say, am I really this man that the door claims me to be? The idea is that before I even enter, I'm, I'm questioning if I can fit into this ideal image of masculinity. Is my beard long enough? Uh, whatever. I don't know what it could be. And this is gender anxiety. Um, today, it seems to me the, the stories that get aired more often concern people who are not standing at the restroom door, wondering if their gender is what it says. It's passing into the restroom and encountering an other who doesn't agree that your gender is the one that you are certain that it is. So the new problem is that the other doesn't recognize the assertion that we make about our own gender. And, and it's a problem because you could go into a restroom and somebody might be violent with you if, if you don't, I mean, making it difficult for you to pass into the restroom. So um, these are new problems. It's, um, it, it reminds me of a joke Zizek often tells. I think he stole it from, was it Alenka Suponsik? Maybe I'm wrong. Said, you know about this joke about the chicken? The chicken? No, I don't. No, okay. it's a joke about a chicken. And the, um, it's a, it's a, a psychoanalyst, uh, a man thinks he's a piece of, I don't know, corn, and there's a giant chicken trying to eat him. Hmm. So he goes to a psychoanalyst, his, her, or their psychoanalyst, and um, says, help me. Uh, I think I'm a piece of corn, and there's a giant chicken trying to eat me. The analyst says, okay, come to see me for three, five months. We'll, we'll figure it out. The, the patient comes for three, five months, and then no longer thinks he's a grain, uh, a piece of corn. It was only a week later, the, um, the patient returns and says, help me to a psychoanalyst, his, her, or their psychoanalyst. And the psychoanalyst um, responds, but I thought I cured you. You no longer think you're a piece of corn. And he says, I know that, you fucking idiot. Hmm. The chicken doesn't know it. But this, this, in some sense, is the definition of the unconscious today. Yeah. You know, it's like we might be cured in some sense of, I don't know, our various uh, delusions or uh, forms of suffering and so on. But that doesn't stop people out there from attacking us out in the other tribes, mm -hmm. you know. And so the idea is that, OK, maybe my gender identity of which I feel fairly certain, has stabilized me, and it's a really productive thing in my life. I don't know who would have a problem with that if it's helping somebody. But the minute you pass into a restroom, there's a fucking chicken in there trying to eat you. Hmm. 
Uh, do you have some any other questions? Yeah. There are a couple of them just taking with me. I'll try and be more concise then, sorry. Okay. So uh, okay, so um there's this uh like I was listening to Lloyd Pearson and he was uh talking about uh he was being asked about the pronoun thing and there's this whole controversy, right? He uh, that he was uh, kind of banned from everywhere to give lectures because he didn't use the specific pronoun. And he said this thing about uh so and I quote, he said uh uh, gender neutral pronouns are a way for the left to control the language and manipulate society. He argues that that the use of gender neutral pronouns represents a threat to freedom of speech and is an attempt to impose political correctness on society. Mm. So, what do you think about that? What do you think uh, is is in the society we have uh, we are living? Is pronouns really necessary? I couldn't say either way. Um, More of like not necessary. Like you can have a pronoun, but is it uh, is it does any benefit to impose on someone to call that specific pronoun? And if you are not, then you are banned or like even go to jail in some countries. Yeah, I mean you're talking to a person who um, I have patients who come to see me who say all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. In some sense. I I don't uh, I'm indifferent to what people say about themselves and what they want me to say about them. Um, it it really it makes no uh, makes no difference to me. Uh, I mean, if somebody asked me to call them by a particular pronoun, I don't see why I shouldn't. Uh, I would say all knowledge, all knowledge is delusional. All knowledge. Controversial, I know, but it's my position. All knowledge is a delusion. And sometimes in psychoanalysis, you have to, out of compassion, enter into the delusion. Uh, Find a delusion that can work for people. So I'm interested in what people say. I mean, I, I've had children come into my clinic many years ago, and they would say, I'm um, I'm a dinosaur. Call me a dinosaur. Okay, call you a dinosaur. It's just as ridiculous as calling you a man or a woman or whatever. It's all a, it's all a fraud. Um, so. Can I just bring the mic lower? Oh, yeah, sorry, okay. sorry. There is that uh, fact that you are calling someone a man or a woman. Uh, isn't there uh, a truth to that? The fact that he is assigned that biologically, but dinosaur doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, but there are. Uh, I was uh, there's this uh, documentary called What Is Woman by Matt Walsh, mm-hmm. and uh, there was this uh, thing they were talking about how uh, in some of the schools people were the student uh, want their teacher to respond like. If they have a question, they would say meow. And if this, if the teacher said like, "Oh, you are not like, why are you saying meow?" and he said, "I am a cat." And if you refuse to say that, then and that teacher was uh, like uh, transfer or something like that. So, do you think it's ridiculous to a point like where someone I'm using that ridiculous <laughs> with a uh, like a poor, like a better word, but is it uh, where it is going? Yeah. 
It's it's really difficult. Um, I make no secret of the fact that I have a lot of problems with the contemporary state of folk movement in the Western world. Um, yet at the same time, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist. Um, I practice psychoanalysis. And in practicing psychoanalysis, I listen to how people speak. What is the truth in the clinic? It's not what a scientist would consider to be a truth. And it's really important that it's different because a truth for us is something that we, we cannot bear to hear ourselves speak. That is what a psychoanalyst would classify as a truth. It's the words of which we cannot bear to hear ourselves speak. So is it truthful for you to be called a man or a woman or, what, or whatever? That's, that can only be decided through the speech in, in the clinic. Um, my position is not uh, one of science where I can simply say, because of biology, this equals that. Um, it's true, maybe it's not, I'm not, I don't care. <laughs> um, I mean, you literally have a tradition of philosophy where something as simple as a table in front of us You'll say, is this really a table? And you can make a funny documentary about it. Hmm. What is a table? That'll be the thing. And I'll sit in a podcast and a person will be beside me and I'll say, is this a table? Hmm. And if they say, well, what is the being of a table? Is it, and, and so on, we can laugh at them. Hmm. Uh, but we need to know the position of the person who's speaking. And we need to somewhat respect the position of the person who's speaking to the greatest extent possible and where it's warranted. And sometimes it's not warranted, of course. Um, but I'll give an example. Um, let's say it's a blending of some clinical examples that I know of. A child, autistic, age 10, 12, has no friends, um, very rarely speaks language, autistic, crawls around on all fours, hides under tables, hides uh, behind objects, opens up the refrigerator, stick her head in forever. But wonderful costume designer. And what this child does is all day long produces costumes that are very elaborate and colorful. And the only way that this little girl will enter into the world is with the costume on. And the costume is in some sense an invention. It's a way to reach out to other people. Maybe it's a costume of a dinosaur. And the children come up to this little girl and say, you're a dinosaur. The biologist will say, you're not a dinosaur. You are a little girl with some cruelty. The biologist is right, maybe. It is a little girl. You're not a dinosaur, of course. There's something cruel in that. Um, now, what this little girl is doing is weaving something together 
to reach out to the social order from which she's been barred, and in accepting her as a dinosaur, she's coming out. She's coming out of her bedroom, out into the world, can make some friends. As a psychoanalyst, I see that as productive. Maybe not as a teacher. I wouldn't want a dinosaur in my classroom. Maybe not as a biologist, but as a psychoanalyst, that's fascinating. Um, but again, isn't that seeking for attention rather than how is that productive? Uh, it, it very much could be seeking attention, but what it is is it's it's the it's the first indication that this little girl is relating to other people in the world, hmm. usually through an animal avatar of some type, whether it's through a video game animal avatar or through um, costume. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people dressing like animals today, and it's not just this little girl. We're dressing like animals in the metaverse. Yeah. We're dressing like animals um, in various subcultures that are growing in influence, such as the furries and, and so on. Mm -hmm. There's an entire subculture of people who are having sex with one another and so on. At some level, the costume needs to go. At some level. At some level, the hope and the achievement would be to take the costume off. But we get there. We'll get there. But uh, you're talking about the costumes. Like, yeah, like what? Uh, if you look at it, like this thing about um, a man can be a woman. And I'm not talking about um, how you dress up. How you, and there is no problem in calling someone dinosaur or they, them, whatever. Like, I, I have no problem. But uh, this was the uh, this is the interesting thing where uh, Jordan Peterson was asked that is transgender woman a woman, and he said this thing on the lines that uh, that question is really uh, it's it, it's not the correct way to answer. It's because of the fact that if transgender woman is a woman, if they should get the rights, of course. If they they should be violence against them, no, of course not. But what are the things which comes with that? Can transgender woman? play uh, in uh, women's sports. No, because they have advantage. They are still men. Their hormones are still there. So my question is that if at some point the costumes, like in, in most of the cases, the costumes are never out. So they are uh, they are assigned to a gender or they are assigned to a, to a specific sex which they don't belong to and they ask the rights which they are not uh, it's not uh, right to give them that because they will uh, they're threatening the other gender, which uh, is which they have a specific advantage to that. So my question is that where does it has to be stopped? And in most cases, it doesn't. So what can we do? And if we do something, then it you're just a transphobe. Yeah. No. I I hear I hear I hear you, and I hear what's happening uh, today. Um, for me, as a as a person who's interested in psychoanalysis, I can just say that this is one site around which we can witness the contemporary discontents of our civilization. Um, and I would say that, the, you know, from the position of psychoanalysis, we're not so interested in governing. Um, although Freud did, did describe it as one of the impossible professions, 
means governing, teaching, psychoanalysis. These are professions according to which we cannot be guaranteed in advance any satisfactory result at the end. Um, and governing is one of them. Uh, but psychoanalysis and governing are two different things. Um, legislating differences between the sexes uh, or not is interesting. From a psychoanalytic perspective, I find that interesting because um, there was a time when governing um, was, um, you know, I, I grew up an anarchist. I mean, while, while I was a teenager, I was an anarchist. And my whole idea was, you know, the state was a place of power. And, you know, it, it was like it imposed rules upon us and these sorts of things. And we needed to get rid of the state to be free. It's naive sort of idea. But a lot of people had that naive idea. And up until the 19 late 1970s, really, I mean, you you start to see this place of power begin to erode and its consequences upon society. Um, increasingly, I think what you see in governing are not prohibitions, which would give rise to distinctions between the sexes, perhaps. Prohibitions, no to this, no to that. You know, the whole idea of law was you can't, thou shall. It was Judaic law. In Judaism, you know, the religion of the law, the idea is you cannot covet thy neighbor's wife, you cannot this and that. It's a prohibition against enjoyment. 1979, really, and thereafter, slowly there's the demise of the prohibition function of the law, of the government, of the state. And in all aspects of life, including the father is the head of the nuclear family, um, the breadwinner uh, model of the family in the West, um, uh, respect for judges, um, um, police officers. Uh, all of these things are slowly becoming questioned as we move from the 80s into the 90s and early 2000s. It's an erosion of paternal authority at all levels. And so the function of the government increasingly has been to legislate enjoyment. Uh, this worries me. It's not as pervasive as I'm making it seem, hmm. but instead of prohibiting, it's about particularly uh, affirming in the particular, the particular rights of particular groups. Hmm. In this sort of, instead of prohibiting enjoyment, we will allow the enjoyment of particular groups in various ways. And this worries me. You can see it at low level, at the level of institutional policy. Because what it does is it produces new forms of fascism that are hitherto unthinkable. The way fascism worked, uh, Nazism, to put it clearly, you had what was called the anti-Semitic legislation. Clear prohibition from the living space, whatever, of Jews, Freemasons, um, communists, homosexuals, and so on. Prohibition, no. <laughs> um, today, with particular affirmations of enjoyment, as you see it in institutional policy, low-level policy, and so on, particular segments of the population are encouraged, maybe you saw it a little bit with affirmative action and so on, are encouraged, are, are affirmed. And what that can give rise to is an implicit eraser of particular groups. Instead of an explicit prohibition against groups, you have an, an implicit 
prohibition of groups. And um, so you can say, um, I don't know, particular identities get particular groups, but then you won't say one other identity. Uh, and, and I think this really concerns me. This is a cunning form of, of mastery, a cunning form of political usage. The psychoanalyst notices this and says, this is a new problem. That's interesting. I'm not going to legislate it. But what I can say is that when people come to a psychoanalyst, expecting it to be a place where their identities are affirmed, their knowledge is affirmed, their enjoyment is affirmed, and so on. Um, what they get is maybe something quite different, um, a place where they can rest from all of that. That's interesting. Uh, you're briefly talking about the unconscious, and I'm really intrigued by the unconscious. Uh, it fascinates me that there's something going on in there that we aren't aware of, but it's shaping our lives and releasing it. Uh, so I just wanted to ask this, uh, how much do we know about the unconscious? today? Like, what does modern science know about it? And what are the aspects of it that we don't have any clue about? Yeah, the unconscious is, a, I think, um, the question I was asking myself, can psychoanalysis do without the unconscious? Hmm. The question. I don't think it can. Hmm. You'll get different answers to this. But my position is that Psychoanalysis cannot do without the unconscious. It's not one of the fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis. That's because it's not a concept. It's a question of what is the unconscious and where is it? Where is the unconscious is a question I find particularly interesting today because if you look at Freud's work, particularly in the 1920s, 1923, I think, in the, I think it's 1923 when he comes up with this, which is called the second topography, he models in pictorial terms, the psychical apparatus. Mm. And the unconscious is inside of it. So we imagine the unconscious to be inside of us. Yeah. We often think inside the brain if we think scientifically. Psychoanalysts are not scientists, although we take what we can from science. Um, so the unconscious was thought to be inside and even more than that, we thought it was something that could be deciphered. And so the idea was that, I mentioned it earlier, you would have a dream, and the dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. Hmm. And so that you would bring your dream to your psychoanalyst, and your psychoanalyst would help you decipher the dream. This was the naive idea that we had of psychoanalysis. We were interpreting dreams. But it's the interpretation of dreams was the title of that book by Freud. The interpretation of dreams, which can, it's an equivocation. It can, it's not we're interpreting dreams. The interpretation of dreams could also be dreams are doing the work of interpretation. Dreams are already like poetry. Dreams interpret themselves. Hmm. So what's the function of a psychoanalyst in that context? It's not to provide a meaningful interpretation of the dream. The dream can be thought of as a place of meaning, yes. Hmm. Like a, it, it carries all these meanings and impressions uh, which we can get through interpretation. That's maybe what we can call, uh, we can call it a, a meaningful unconscious. But there's another unconscious, and Freud discussed it at various times, what he called the primitive unconscious, hmm. the place of what he called the id, the darkest corner of the unconscious. 
which cannot be accessed by knowledge, by meaning. In dreams, there's what he referred to as the navel of the dream, the part in every dream that cannot be interpreted, where meaning just breaks down. That's the nightmare, the moment when maybe we wake up. And Freud had a dream like this. It's a dream known as the dream of Irma's injection. Freud was having, uh, he had a particularly pro uh, problematic case with a patient. I don't think he was feeling very good because he couldn't cure her. And he had a dream that he was looking down her throat because she was sick mm. and saw like white pus and all this gross stuff. He's looking into a hole. Mm. He had the courage to look into a hole. And uh, H-O-L-E, hole. Yeah. And, um, and he kept looking and then he saw a formula emerge. Mm. A formula of, I think it was trimethylamine or something like that. So there's there's a hole in the dream. And if we have the courage to stay in the dream and witness it without waking up so quickly, maybe there's like a little treat, something there waiting for us, a formula that is like the formula of our own DNA. And in some sense, this is what some psychoanalysts believe. I had a dream like that. I won't get into it today. So there's what we can call the real unconscious, which is a horrific unconscious. When we encounter the real unconscious, which is what we're encountering more and more today, it's a place of nightmares. You know, fewer people are dreaming today than ever before. Hmm. Like there's people, there's a project known as the COVID Dream Project, where they're documenting dreams people were having during COVID. I think many of them were nightmares. Hmm. People are having less dreams. Why are we dreaming less? Where did the dreams go? Hmm. And my answer is the dreams went into reality, into the metaverse. We're dreaming now in waking life. The nightmares are now in here. Hmm. We used to have a shitty life out here. And so we would dream and have a wonderful life in here. Hmm. So like the idea was that for Freud, we had obstacles in our waking life. Obstacles. We couldn't get things. So we, mm. we were working really hard. We worked nine to five job. We wanted, I don't know, a fucking PlayStation, whatever the heck it was. We would dream of a PlayStation. We couldn't get it in waking life. We'd get it in our dreams. Dream was a place of satisfaction. We got what we couldn't get in waking life in our dreams. Today, we get what the fuck we want in our, in our waking life. Mm. Just go to Tinder. You have anything you want out there. You know, it's very easy to get the sex you thought you were deprived of in the 1970s, 1980s. Mm. You can get it today. It's there. It's easy. Anybody can. I mean, almost anybody can get it. And mm. those who can't are right to be upset mm. because they know other people are getting access. So, so we dream in waking life. The dreams are out here today mm. and the nightmares in here. So the question is, where's the unconscious? I think we witness the unconscious outside of ourselves today. The place of infinite meaning is at your fingertips. You can weave together as much meaning and knowledge as you want. It used to be only in our dreams that we would, we would uh, uh, have an infinite supply of knowledge that could be fabricated. Now it's right here in front of us right now. Hmm. So, um, so it's clear that there are different positions of the unconscious. The unconscious can be placed in different places. Um, and, um, and it's clear that there's an unconscious of meaning, which some people refer to as a transferential or symbolic unconscious. And there's an unconscious of the real, which is the place of waking up, of nightmares, mm. and so on. Maybe I'll just say one more thing. Yeah, sure. Okay. The idea of, of 
Freud was that we keep dreaming, mm. um, you know, like we'll internalize perceptions in our reality into the dream so that we can keep dreaming because we love dreaming. Mm. It's a masturba masturbation session, our dreams. It's a place of satisfaction. Mm. We get as much satisfaction as we can in our dream and we'll just keep dreaming. And that's why some people will pee the bed. You know, we'll forego reality to have our dreams. Um, in some sense, psychoanalysis is trying to wake us up from the dream, a real awakening. And that's why so much of psychoanalysis has turned to the East. So many people think of India as the past. You know, like India is like, oh, it's more feudal. It hasn't caught up with uh, contemporary capitalism. You know, you hear this stuff from sociologists like Max Weber and some of these others. It's clear that India is and has always been the future. The West is just catching up to India today. This idea that we need to wake up. It's nothing new to people in India. That's not. <laughs> you know, the idea of shunya, isn't it? Yeah, shunya. Uh, in Buddhism. The, yeah, yeah. The, this is nothing new in Buddhism. And so psycho, psychoanalysts are just trying to catch up to, to uh, the East. Hmm. And it turns out the West has always had a lot of the East inside of itself that it wasn't ready to face. Hmm. You just mentioned about uh, how we were talking about poetry, right? And you just mentioned how it's not meant to be beautiful. I'm intrigued by the idea of beauty itself, right? What exactly is beauty? And what is the utility of beauty? Hmm. Like, where does the sense of beauty come from? Really tough. I find proof of the unconscious in my relationship to beauty over many years. Uh, I hesitate to talk about some of this stuff, but you bring it out of me, so I'll allow it. <laughs> I've often said that I've been attracted to women who seem to have the same fundamental qualities. And I often said, how could I have seen it just by looking at their face? Hmm. So there's something of beauty that's implicated, I think, in what psychoanalysts call transference. I'm transferring something of myself onto the other when I call her beautiful hmm. or him or them. In my case, her. Um, so what is beauty? This is, a, this, is a, this is a tough question. I mean, what your hmm. friend here was reminding me is that I had a misconception that the poets lacked courage because they seemed to bow down to poetry uh, as beautiful. Whereas the psychoanalyst stayed an intervention there uh, instead of at the moment of awakening, a minor awakening, what we can now call a, an awakening, mm. where one encounters the real, there's the temptation to run back to the dream. And the dream is beautiful. Um, let's say I'm sleeping, and then something of the real wakes me up. Maybe I have to piss. I wake up to go on dreaming in waking life. This was Freud's, sorry, this was Lacan. 
addition to Freud's understanding of dreams. Dreams want to keep dreaming, yes, but they wake up. We wake up from the dream, and in the moment of waking up, we go back into the dream. The dream, why? This is a dream because it has all the qualities of a dream. I understand things here. I use metaphor. I use metonymy. I use meaning. You are wearing a red hoodie, you know, and I can, mm. and we're speaking and we're speaking in the same way that uh, using the same sort of uh, raw materials and functions that are at play in the dream work. That's why all knowledge is a delusion. Dreams are maddening. They're like delusions. The dream is something we believe in just as much as, um, we believe in our dream when we're dreaming. So we wake up to continue dreaming. We wake up so that we don't have to live in the moment of an awakening. So in the same way, there are poems, I think, that will wake us up. They fake us to our core. I've had one. It's a poem that's affected me for more than 15 years. It's been the subject of all kinds of discussions with my former analysts in the plural and it was by Charles Baudelaire um, titled in English to a woman passing by. It's a poem that has affected me deeply. And I heard it not so long ago by Jacques-Alain Miller, who was a living disciple of Jacques Lacan. He read it at a psychoanalytic conference. He couldn't have known that it had anything special uh, for me. He doesn't know of me, I don't think. But um, this dream haunts me. And the idea for poets is uh, that they wake up to continue dreaming too. I had this idea Maybe it's wrong. I think you've corrected it by referring to Bukowski earlier. Uh, sorry, what's your name again? Suraj. Suraj. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, maybe Bukowski demonstrates something different. Um, but there's this poem by Kalal Gibran. Um, I'm going to have to paraphrase it. It's really short. He hmm. said something like. I've seen you in my dreams, and now you come in my awakening too, which is my deeper dream. Kalal Gibran, I think. That's deep. Um, my idea was that the poets will touch something of the real precisely to bring it back to the beautiful. I look at Baudelaire to a woman passing by. He is walking down the street in the crowds, and he, um, he sees a woman, tall, majestic, swinging her arm or something like that. And he looks at her in an instant. It's a fleeting moment, and he passes her. He looks in her eyes, and he says um, her, her eyes are like a storm. Torture him. Torture hmm. him something of the real at stake. Uh, and he passes her and he says, oh, you who I could have loved, oh, you who knew it too. And it's a beautiful poem. And I've recited it at Cafe Bellevue hmm. to a stranger, a woman I met one evening. I, I don't know, I, I took some 
chairs and I brought them together and put them into a podium. The restaurant staff hated me for this. And I just did this poetry reading on the spot spontaneously of Baudelaire's to a woman passing by. It's as if I'm repeating this poem over and over again. I'm repeating it. Um, all these women who have become passerbys in my life, hmm. uh, fleeting instant, we could have been there together forever and so on. So the poet makes that beautiful. The psychoanalyst wants you to endure the real of it. And I think that's different. But lately I've been moved by uh, a different idea and that's why I'm so taken by what you were saying with Bukowski. I wonder if there are poems that that um, maybe don't wake us up, but that can perform a function for us. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just another idea, because that's why I've been writing poetry myself lately. Um, yeah, I don't know. When it comes to beauty, um, I am, I'm very suspicious of beauty. Lacan had an expression, by the way, hmm. the escabeau. What does that mean? I think uh, it might be, I might be wrong, it might be Spanish. Uh, it means stepladder. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it also, in French, I think it sounds like, is it beautiful? Hmm. And the idea is that beauty can elevate us. Hmm. Um, and that's what we were talking about James Joyce earlier. That's what James Joyce was doing with his writing. He was elevating himself. The artist elevates his ego. He mm. can know something of who he is when he says that. And, 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 and beauty can be an elevating experience. But I think what psychoanalysis often is, is it, it's, um, instead of elevating you, it, um, it produces a mourning of the loss of beauty, mm. but a mourning that you can handle. You can live without beauty. Um, you can know how to live without beauty. Maybe just one more word and then I'll stop. The, an example I'll give you comes from the legend of Orpheus and Eurydice. Hmm. Do you know it? Yeah, you have mentioned it. Did I already talk about this? Because it's, I, I don't no, know. No, it's not about on the camera. Okay, okay. Orpheus. <laughs> oh, yes, I remember now. Yeah. Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, I have a friend, Braha Edinger, um, whose uh, reading of this poem and also her paintings of this poem, her paintings, I wouldn't say are beautiful, by the way, the, tra the traumatic paintings. Hmm. Um, you can look them up if you want, uh, Orpheus number, whatever. In fact, my book on love, uh, in the first page, there's a reprint of her painting, hmm. Eurydice, I think. Um, so what, what is, um, this story about Orpheus is in love with Eurydice um, and nobody doubts it and they're walking in the forest and Eurydice, I'm going to give you the abridged version, Eurydice runs away or something, steps on a snake, um, dies. It's terrible. Orpheus is so in love with her. He can't mourn her loss. Um, so he has some gifts that are quite beautiful in his own way. He can play the Lute, is it? He's playing this instrument to appeal to the gods. It's so beautiful, we're told that even the stones, all of nature, all, everything, the all, all of it was moved by his sad, beautiful song. So the gods said, we'll, uh, we'll allow you to go retrieve her from the underworld, the dark underworld. And in the dark underworld, uh, if when you're bringing her back, if you look back at her, you'll lose her forever. 
So he goes into the underworld to try and retrieve his love, and he's going. He, they're going. They're they're elevating to the world, and uh, elevating out of the darkness step by step. And he wonders if there was a trick. Was he tricked? Hmm. So he's saying, uh, like, is he really behind me? And he looks back. She vanishes forever. So what happens? He ends up um, devastated. There's different versions of the ending of the story, I think. He sits in front of a tree like the Buddha hmm. uh, mourning. Although many women wanted to be with him. Um, he wanted none of them because it was all Eurydice. Uh, and he just sat there mourning her forever. Mm. So what's interesting to me is that even the telling of the story is quite beautiful. Don't we all want to be like Orpheus in some sense, to have a beauty uh, and a love that's directed toward beauty that strong? As for me, I'm interested in a love that can tolerate the monster, something monstrous in my partners. Because I think this entire narrative is far too beautiful. You know what basically happened in my reading? Hmm. This is my contribution to the scholarship on Orpheus and Eurydice, which distinguishes it from Judith Butler and from Braha Edinger who's a good friend, and Judith Butler was a former teacher of mine too, but I differ very much from Butler's work. I think the gods were not tricking him. Mm. I think the gods uh, were trying to show Orpheus a really paradoxical logic, one that's really difficult to wrap your head around. He, they were intent on tricking him, yes, just like a psychoanalyst is a trickster, a fraud, a swindler. Um, because uh, the trick is the truth. He needed to see the truth of the trick. He needed to lose her in order to believe that he ever had her to begin with. All of a sudden, at the end, he's really believing in her beauty. All of a sudden, he, he really believes that he had somebody there to lose. Hmm. But you never had or Eurydice. Even before she died, you never had her. You had her as a fiction, as a delusion, as beauty, as, um, as a knowledge of who he is which is not who he is. He's not there. Um, and if you can tolerate that fundamental absence, maybe you can spend your time with something beautiful. You know, this is the problem. This was the problem of psychoanalysis. I'm like giving a lecture now. I apologize. But the problem of psychoanalysis, you know the Freud story of little Hans. Uh, and then I'll shut up. Little Hans is a little boy who was playing with a, uh, an object. Uh, he was throwing it over the corner of his bed. And he was saying, fort da, pulling it back, fort da, which in German means, uh, let's just say it means gone and back, or there and here, there and here, there and here. And Freud's whole idea was that this little boy was so connected to his mother, first image of beauty for a child, and 
he couldn't tolerate his mother's absence. So what he could do is he could control the absence using words and this object. Hmm. And so he can control the trauma of his mother's departure. One of my earliest memories was my mom at the age of four or five. I have one even earlier than this, but I'll spare you. Where my mom was um, giving, uh, reading a bedtime story to me with her hand in my hair. And I would be falling asleep. And then I'd wake up and she'd be walking away. And I felt betrayed. Hey, I'm not asleep yet. My heart's beating. My body is reacting to this. Um, the trauma, the anxiety for a little boy. She comes back, she tries again, reads the story, puts her hand in my hair, and now I don't trust her if I'm staying awake a little longer. The origin of all of my sleeping problems began there. And, um, well, that's what bedtime stories do. You know, they... um, they keep you from encountering the unconscious, the place where you can dream, the place where you can fall asleep, and and, uh, and so on. So um, this is why I don't trust beauty. Hmm. In psychoanalysis, beauty often, though not exclusively, I wonder if there's a different sort of beauty um, that we could unpack, but I'm not at the position of being capable of doing it yet. Hmm. But um, beauty is uh, something that I struggle to um, to be tempted by today. Interesting. You've said this a lot of times. Knowledge is delusion, right? And I was just wondering if uh, language plays some sort of role uh, in limiting us reaching to the truth. Language is something that limits us, rather than empowering us. Yeah, I think it does limit us. Um, okay, let's mm-hmm. see if I can develop something for you. For Freud, yeah. is it okay I talk a lot about Freud? Yeah, it's okay, okay. it's okay. For Freud, he had this idea. Mm. He was he was working at around the same time as the birth of linguistics. Mm. He didn't know about the forefather of general linguistics named Ferdinand de Sathora, but Sathora was working around the same time teaching classes on linguistics. And a lot of Freud's understandings of the unconscious, particularly in his book on dreams, dream interpretation, he said the dream is like a rebus, a picture puzzle. It, it seemed to have a syntax, a grammar. It seems to be like a language. And what Freud called condensation uh, and displacement, which you may or may not be familiar with in, mm-hmm. dream, uh, in dream interpretation, but Freud described the way the dream fabricates things through condensation and displacement. Um, it's exactly what another linguist uh, named Roman Ye- Jacobson called metaphor and metonymy. So the dream seems to reveal that the unconscious is like a language. Mm. And Lacan's early intuition was that the unconscious is structured like a language. His exact words, the unconscious like a language, structured Mm. like a language, like a language. And so with that in mind, we could say that the idea is to decipher the unconscious. But Lacan advanced quite a bit beyond Freud. He realized that um language is not always a semantic language. That's what Chomsky calls it. You know, Chomsky knows yeah. Chomsky. Semantic. It's not always a semantic mm-hmm. unconscious we're dealing with. It's not always an unconscious that has this certain type of grammar, 
syntactic structures and this sort of stuff. It's an unconscious that um, babbles and makes sound like a baby at the breast, goo goo gaga, and so on. So there's what Thor called long, but there's what Lacan called la long, all one word. And it's the babbling of language. Um, in other words, there's a language of, uh, of excitation, of stimulation. Now that's going to sound really obscure, but I'll tell you what it means. Just imagine that... Language is that which replaces the object that used to excite us, which was the breast. Hmm. It still excites me. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive me. That's, that's, thug, that's thug life. You know, that's the moment in, in the yeah. clip where you put the stage. Yeah, we'll, we'll edit this out. <laughs> and you put the, the cigarette in the... Um, <laughs> Forgive me. Before, that's funny. First show, you and I did this out and make a shot out of it. That... That's okay, you have my permission. <laughs> um, but the idea is that, you know, when you're a baby mm-hmm. and you're suckling at the breast and you have all the warmth, all the protection, all the mm-hmm. nourishment that you could ever want, why ever speak? Why do you need language? You have everything you need. Exactly. You speak because it's gone. Mm-hmm. Language is there um, to to articulate what it is that you think went missing that you can get again. So, for example, I want food now, mom. So now the mom will get you food. So language had this idea of filling in the place where the um, the oneness with the mother has has. Um, there's now a gap there, and that's where language sits. Mm-hmm. So, so language has a particular function, and its function is, in some sense, to replace our prior enjoyment and to make us fantasize, maybe, or desire. Enjoyment to come. Mm. Maybe I can get it again. I can go back to the bed with mm. the mom or something. Okay. Lacan advanced upon Freud because he realized that language can itself be like suckling at the breast. Language itself can be a form of stimulation and enjoyment. Just listen to me talk. Um, there are people who will speak and you can tell they're really getting off on what they're saying. Yeah. You know, they love their own voice. They love... And and language can be a source of enjoyment, which is why Lacan opened one of his seminars. He said, for the moment, I'm speaking, not fucking, but I can have exactly the same satisfaction as if I were fucking. Definition of sublimation. And what you discover in the clinic is that it used to be that people would come and they'd have long periods of silence. They hated going to the clinic to talk to their psychoanalyst because there were things they didn't want to say. Now people will come to the clinic and they go session after session after session and they just blah, 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 blah. Talking in the clinic becomes a source of enjoyment. How do you intervene when speech itself becomes a source of enjoyment? Language itself, la lang, goo goo ga ga goo goo, you're doing nothing different. So um, it's, I think, in some sense, Lacan's point, and you can find it in one of his seminars, the 24th seminar, which is an obscure seminar from Lacan that's really hard actually to find a good translation of right now, but there's one coming out in the future, um, uh, uh, an authorized version. Hmm. Uh, Lacan says, in fact, the reason why we can say there's no such thing as a meta-language, I know it's a complicated logical problem, but 
forget mm. it. The reason is because all language is only language about language, which means either it's all meta language mm. or we're just not in language. And this is the weird thing, because we tend to think of language as a semantic grammatical structure that has clear rules and so on. Mm. Okay, yeah, but that's also a source of satisfaction. We enjoy that. So we, the triumph today would be to learn to use language. And we know that we have an aversion to language precisely because certain words today more than ever resonate to such an extent that they will produce trauma in people. So every word can be a potential trigger. Hmm. Like the signifier is a trigger. Hmm. All words are trigger words for somebody. Yeah, for somebody, for some group out there. The reason is quite simple. It's because uh, a trigger word is a signifier that we have not accepted hmm. for, for ourselves. And there's good reason. Maybe it was the source of considerable suffering and hmm. so on. We are traumatized by language. So language is out there. The dream work is out there. Language is out there. And we're struggling to become linguists. We don't have language. We're all just babbling in some sense. So um, your question about language leads me to conclude that I think the real triumph today would be to be truly literary, to truly enter into language, by which I mean a common discourse with somebody else where we can have a back and forth exchange and it's not just mutual monologues, you know? We're just talking to brick walls, talking yeah. to ourselves. Hmm. This is what I think a lot of people are doing today. That's interesting. So I guess uh, that's it for today. Like, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you so much. That was fun.